This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luke Olivitz Meble. And I'm Yannick Maria. And what's the topic for today, Yannick? 2019 Game of the Year. Good, but before we start, we have some follow-up. First item is, uh, remember a while back uh, in some of uh, episodes follow-up where I was talking again about some of the carplay stuff because, as I mentioned in last episode, I love to talk about infotainment systems. Um, I was bringing up that BMW wanted to charge an annual fee to get CarPlay enabled mm. in your car. <laughs> and this week... BMW announced that they reversed their decision to charge vehicle owner uh, annual fee for CarPlay. And I'll put a link in the show notes from The Verge. But more or less is to say is that they are going back to their old strategy, which was still there, which is it is a typical car option. You need to pay for it. And it's unlocked forever. So it's not behind this subscription-based service, if you say what I mean. It's kind of a ACP as a service. So I call Apple CarPlay as a service. I'm sure we can make a shit ton of acronym for as a service. But uh, I I wouldn't be surprised that this reversal was caused by the backlash that people uh, mentioned a lot since the announcement of uh, that new fee. Next point, uh, in my photo management episode, uh, I mentioned that I, uh, was sharing some of the picture using the new iCloud share link functionality. And the, the main, uh, person that it was driven to was A, Yannick, but he was not downloading any pictures. And B, uh, one of our friends that were uh, doing the trip that is not using iOS nor the Mac. So uh, during the episode, I reported that she was having issues, but in the end, uh, she was able to confirm to me that uh, she was able to download all the pictures she needed without any itch. That, and then she would be trying some of the videos, but I kind of like told her that I filmed it in 4K, so they would be big, so she will need to clear out some space uh, in her laptop uh, and or like find a way to put them into her own like I don't know if she uses Dropbox or G Drive but find a place to store them because they are quite huge so uh, I don't know if she's done that yet but at least the important part is read the pictures and that uh, it was quite a success with a friend that has Android as a phone and a PC as their uh, computer devices and that's it for my follow-up all right um, exciting mobile payments news for our listeners in the UK. Uh, Apple Pay can now be used in express transit mode on transport for London services. So similar to how Suica payment works in Japan, you can just tap your phone or Apple Watch at transit gates without needing to authenticate with Face ID or Touch ID, depending on the model of phone you have. Uh, in Japan, express mode works at transit gates and for purchasing terminals in stores but not vending machines or other types of sensors. And it sounds from what I read on the, uh, the little showcase page on the Apple website that um, this is only going to be transit gates in uh, Europe, in the UK, sorry. Uh, you can continue to use your card registered for express transit for five hours after your phone or watch enters power reserve mode, which I did not know. I don't know if this is new functionality or if that's always been there. It is new functionality. If I recall what I've read, and let me slowly but surely try to Google up, uh, TFL, uh, Express, but I've, if I recall the page, there was an asterisk and they were saying iPhone 10R and up. 
but you see, I, I'm an iPhone XR owner who was using iOS 13 with my Suica thing, and I had no idea that was a thing. So. Yeah, so that, no, but that's good for you uh, because you do have a XR, but this really means it is for recent phones uh, only. Yep, but still very good to know and very cool feature as well. Um, next up is a funny little thing that came out this week uh, re- relating to episode 115 on branches versus feature flags. There were reports of an iOS staff meeting discussing a new approach to iOS development, which is feature flags. Uh, that leaked out, and in the last two weeks, the whole developer community has been fired up with their hot takes about uh, feature flags and how they're probably not actually the fix for the tons of issues we've had with iOS 13 this year. So I will put a link in the show notes to Michael Tsai's blog. Michael Tsai's blog is just a great blog to follow in general because he sent he tends to just collect a bunch of opinions about literally every big topic in the uh, Mac and iOS development community. Um, but if you want to like get caught up on all the hot takes, you can just go read his summary on his blog and it'll fill you up we don't have time to talk about it really because we have a media episode today <laughs> um by the way i finally loaded the uh apple.com slash uk slash apple dash pay slash transport and the star only applies for phones there there is no mention about power reserve on watch they just say power reserve is available in an iphone 10 hour or later express mode becomes unavailable when you power off Interesting. I thought I saw a screenshot of a watch with the thing that said Power Reserve, but Express on it as well. So I'm not sure if I hallucinated that or if that was actually there. Um, but maybe I can look that up and figure it out for the next episode. For sure. All right. Game of the year. I've been looking forward to this episode for almost a year now. <laughs> yeah. And would it be now a tradition? Because that would be the second year now that we did yeah, I'm intending on this to be a regular thing every December, so look forward to it. I want to go back and talk about something that I mentioned on last year's episode, which is I sort of had this idea of going into 2019 with a theme, and I sort of want to remind people of that theme in case you haven't been keeping up. Uh, my theme for my personal gaming this year was Year of PlayStation. Uh, it turns out Tuesday was the 25th anniversary of the PlayStation's launch in Japan. And last year around this time, uh, the PlayStation Classic was announced, and it made me really excited because everyone was talking about how disappointing the game lineup on the PlayStation Classic was. Was, and it made me pay closer attention to the actual PlayStation's game library. Um, and I did play a lot of PS1 games as rentals back in the day, but if I'm being completely honest, my taste in video games wasn't quite as refined 20 years ago as it was now, uh, so I was renting a lot more bad games. <laughs> Why am I surprised? I mean, everybody was playing a lot more bad games there back in those <laughs> days. Uh But this year, I wanted to play a bunch of games from that era and get a better understanding for what made the PlayStation great as a system and the feelings that people have for the games of that era, especially the JRPGs, which I played very few of. And I had originally planned to do stuff like focus on two games a month, one game on the PlayStation and one game on a handheld during my commute in a big, small, small repeating pattern. I had like all this spreadsheet shit. It was awesome. But as you're going to see in my game choices... Things didn't quite go as planned. Uh, before before we talk about what happened to me, Nikodivu wants to talk about some honorable mentions for his games. Yeah, which is also a, kind of what happened to my... Uh, <laughs> what went horribly wrong. Th- yes, wh- what happened to my playtime this year. It's quite interesting because I had this list of played so far games in my notes to in preparation for this episode literally since last December. And... 
I guess it's good for me, but I would have been uh, good for uh, it would have created a good comedic moment. But Notes of App doesn't give you an history, and I wouldn't be surprised that the change log would haven't changed too much in the last, let's say, nine months. Uh, so throughout the year, I did mention, and I'll go back on some of them, so that I played some games. But literally, uh, I think the last time I played some of PS4 is literally like months ago. I think it's like last spring when I did uh, episode 110, which was the uh, Battle Royale episode. Um, so yes, uh, compared to Yannick, with, uh, which you had a nice team and a nice idea, even if uh, maybe you run into some hiccups with your personal life to try to make it happen, I think for your uh, side of things, uh, this is more of a resounding success, success than just, uh, 2019 for me as a video game player. So I, I, I think that this year will make it for, uh, quite a comedic moment, uh, for me in this episode because I haven't played too much games. And to be fair on my end, I said I was going to play 24 games this year. I did play exactly 24 games this year, except they were definitely not the games I thought I was going to play this year. <laughs> That's literally about maybe 18 to 20 more games than I did play <laughs> in the end. So consider that a success. So honor- honorable mention, um, I did spend a lot of times uh, playing Battle Royale games, especially in preparation for episode 110. I think the outcome of this, which was also a runner-up from Yannick last year, it is literally uh, Call of Duty Black Ops 4. Yeah. Um, I did focus a lot last year on uh, the Battle Royale mode. Uh, since then, I did continue play uh, more like January till, let's say, March, April. Uh, I did play uh, a lot of those uh, other modes, mainly the new uh, zombie modes. Uh, I feel that uh, they they did a nice twist. They kind of uh, you kind of a group of four people that travel through time. There's one that is more kind of. Uh, on the scene, there's one that is on the scene of the t- the Titanic, and I feel that they really expanded. I, they expanded the uh, the maps there, where a lot could happen. Uh, so it was quite creative. But in the end, even there, uh, those uh, especially zombie mode, it's always fun to play with others. And uh, Yannick doesn't like this mode, and my brother was not really in the mood since he discovered Battle Royale games too. So uh, the early 2019 was really uh, I could really mention it like my battle royale moment uh, on top of that and that's if you remember uh the episode uh i would say the other honorable mention in the category of battle royale is now i'm blanking out on the name that's bad uh apex legends thank you that is apex legend i was like apex, apex. but yeah so apex legend is another honorable mention sadly i haven't played too much after the episode and i think this is one of the games from that episode that i really want to reconsider in the next few months or a few weeks mainly because i think it received uh from whatever it received a lot of great updates and people said it improved greatly in the past year or so yeah they actually added a new map which looked really cool um, it's one of those games where I can't actually bring myself to play it because I'm so into the mindset of I want to play solos by myself and not screw up the game for my team. Um, but I, I think there was solos mode for like 
a brief limited period of time and then when i re-downloaded the game it was gone or something so i don't know what's up with that um but i have been watching quite a bit of apex legends on youtube and on twitch uh just because like if i can't play it myself i'm just gonna watch other people play it because it's still a really cool game my next two honorable mentions um i hope the they're not stealing your thunder i think no but they're kind of related to your playstation team uh the first one is more or less all the games that i've played at your place uh with psvr mm-hmm. um i do think that the games that i've enjoyed the most um astrobot for example um gt sport nah, if you recall <laughs> my opinion on that episode um i re-listened to it this week at work and i was very amused when i got to the gran turismo sport part and i was like oh this is going to be the game that you like and you were like eh. yeah and the other game that i played and nearly destroyed your apartment oh super uh, hot vr yeah super hot vr that was a great uh, it and astrobots to me feel like a good vr demo that is also a great video game uh and i'm sure maybe astrobot after you completed the playthrough you're like kind of ah it's not a uh maybe not the funnest uh game to kind of replay and replay again but i kind of have a feeling that it still has this element including the fact that i don't really own the psvr just like played let's say an hour or two at your place last but not least and i have kind of Two, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they've ever covered that in top four. But what would be the inverse of honorable mentions? Uh, I'm not so sure it, what you mean. It is mentions, but I don't consider honorables. Okay, They're so not, a dishonorable mention. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I, I wouldn't be surprised that at some point Marco would have uh, maybe uh, proposed a, a, a funnier wording. But yes, a dishonorable mention. I would say Fortnite. For sure. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I agree. Think, yeah, yeah. So we've, in this episode, we've been pretty clear. Seriously, if you want to enjoy Battle Royale games, just go try something else. I, I didn't think I was going to have a dishonorable mention, but now that you've introduced the concept, I guess I sort of have to. Uh, the game that I played this year that was the most disappointing to me was Near Automata. Uh, I will mm. m- mention it later on uh, in the episode because it's relevant to one of the things that I'm going to talk about. But uh, it is a game that my friends have hyped to death. And in fact, like hardcore gamers in general have hyped to death. And I had originally started playing it around launch and I did my first playthrough and it was, it was okay. Um, but the gimmick with like near games is that they have multiple endings and you have to play basically the game at least three times to actually like actually play the game because it, it assumes you'll play it at least three times to actually get the full story. And I have never regretted doing that, playing a game three times more than I did that point because I feel like the payoff never came. Oh, how long would it be playing it three times? It's a maybe like, 28 hours oh that's not that bad okay yeah it, it was still reasonable like for each playthrough um but yeah i just ended that game being completely disappointed and i it, i my trust in my friend's recommendations went down significantly after that because i was like i can see how some people could enjoy this but i don't understand how all of these people who usually have great taste, enjoyed this. Anyway, I I don't want to yuck somebody's yum any longer, but that was a game that I played that I was very, very disappointed and actually ended up hating more because I played it longer. Uh, Mostly because, like, 
I felt like I had an incomplete experience with the game just for by my single playthrough. And then the more I played it, the more I hated it. And at the end, I was just so fucking happy it was over. <laughs> wow. I guess that's the perfect definition of a dishonorable mention. And my second and last one is, and that to me, I think I was more optimistic about those games that you were. And maybe that's why they are in this category for me. But the latest Nintendo mobile games, uh, which are Mario Kart Tour and Dr. Mario World. Uh, you completely dislike Dr. Mario World. Uh, you, if I recall correctly, you kind of liked Mario Kart Tour, but as uh, we discussed in Great Lands and a lot of people uh, raged about on the internet, uh, the uh, controls are not so great. Uh, and mainly because of that, I also did uh, kind of play maybe for a week or so and then dropped it. Uh, Dr. Mario World, I kind of hit a wall at some point where it's like becoming uber hard for no apparent reason, unless that reason is literally for you to buy for uh, power-ups and that was frustrating to me as a huge dr mario fan and i've heard the same thing from other friends who've played the game so it's not just you oh really yeah huh so yeah i felt that uh, it would be nice to have dr mario on mobile of course the game if they're free to play it too much and that is sad and a big disappointment this year and I guess, again, I'm creating a new rule, but it's related to my comment of saying I, I kind of have two things in my honorable and dishonorable mentions that were maybe stealing from your list. The first one was PSVR. The second one is that you built a game this year. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, and I- and I feel that it's a, it's a honorable mention. I think, it, it, I don't know, it's like a friendly honorable mention. I don't know where to put it. I'm inventing categories this, uh, this uh, week. It's the but- shout out. Yeah, that could be a good shout out, uh, that you built a game and even if the gameplay was simple, uh, it was fun, you know, like it was fun for you and it was fun for us to discuss it on episode, uh, 113, especially all the uh, tech nerds and the, the programmer nerds discussion and also just like how to make a, like it's quite hard to make a game fun and, and enjoyable. Like uh, every time I read about people explaining their thought process and the, all the process to build like like a card game or like anything like cards against humanity, all that stuff. Like it is hard to do. So I cannot imagine like putting code plus all the creative aspect on it. So yeah, it's a, it's a great shout out for you this year. Yes. And I, I would like to take this opportunity to say it's not going to be our last game. Ooh, That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Good. That's it for my, for my section where I create so much, uh, new categories that, uh, this uh, topic might just explode. All right. I'm going to start with my number four game, which is Fire Emblem Echoes Shadows of Valencia, a 2017 release on the 3DS. It is a turn-based strategy RPG in the Fire Emblem series. Um, mm, I have a question already. Yes. Why is this not a PlayStation game? <laughs> my thought exactly. Well, get strapped in because it's this is only the first non-PlayStation game on the list. <laughs> oh my goodness. So, I find that Fire Emblem Echoes is a greatly underappreciated game in the final uh in the Final Fantasy, yeah, in the Fire Emblem series. Um and as soon as I mention the reason why, it will make perfect sense. It launched in North America and Europe around the same time as Zelda Breath of the Wild and the Nintendo Switch. So nobody fucking played it. Um 
I, I was actually one of the weirdos who, well, I, I've sort of had to import a Japanese version because I have a Japanese 3DS and 3DS is unfortunately region locked. Um, but I got it at launch and I very quickly got overwhelmed by other stuff and had to put it down. Um, but around the time that Fire Emblem Three Houses was released on Switch this year, I picked it back up as my commute game. Um, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, for people who might not be aware, uh, Fire Emblem Echoes Shadows of Valencia is an enhanced but relatively faithful remake of the 1992 uh, Famicom game Fire Emblem Gaiden, which is the second ever Fire Emblem game. And what's interesting about Fire Emblem Gaiden is this is from the era back on the original Nintendo and the Famicom when Nintendo's second games in various series were weird experiments, more so than straight sequels. Like, look at Zelda 2. There are a lot of people who really fucking hate Zelda 2 because it doesn't play at all like normal Zelda. There are also people who love Zelda 2 because it's really weird. Uh, same thing for Super Mario Bros. 2 that came out in Japan. That game is just completely insane and stupid difficult for ridiculous reasons. And the last castle has a weird infinite loop in it that you have to actually like stand on the right sequence of tiles to escape. It's wacky as fuck and makes no sense and goes against like everything in the Nintendo rulebook. Uh, and this is from that era. So it's very interesting. For people who weren't already familiar with Gaiden when they got Fire Emblem Echoes, it was kind of amazing to discover that this 1992 Fire Emblem game had so many ideas that feel fresh and innovative today compared to the rest of the Fire Emblem series. There's a wildly different feeling combat due to the removal of the weapon triangle uh, system, which is like a rock, paper, scissors uh, for the various types of weapons. That system is out the door, and now there's a weird traditional RPG attack defense system that takes its place, which is completely out of the norm. Um, they made major changes to how magic works. Magic costs unit health now to cast instead of magic points or whatever. And that adds a huge risk reward element because you're paying with your health and it makes your healers way more important in the game than they felt in previous games. And I feel like you could make like another Fire Emblem game with just these changes because these are my probably my favorite change in the game. And it sounds like something relatively minor but it has a huge impact on gameplay there are two things in this game that are not in any other fire emblem games there are settlements which are little villages along the way where you can recruit and talk to villagers and find hidden items that are literally hidden in haystacks sometimes uh, there are dungeons which is really weird because you don't really think of a turn-based strategy game as having dungeons but there's third-person dungeon exploration with random encounters, treasures, and unlockable stat boosts. Like, this is wacky shit. And this is from a game from 1992. And at the same time, it's kind of a return to form to the traditional Fire Emblem formula. Uh, Fire Emblem Awakening on the 3DS introduced a controversial sort of dating sim take on the series, which, to be fair, revitalized the sales of the series after a long, long slump on the tail end of the DS days. Um, and more or less, like, what that mechanic is, is you can pair up units of opposite genders via the support mechanic and gradually grow their relationship and when their bond reaches the top tier they can get married and have children which are in-game units and their stats depend on which characters you've paired together and of course to enable the player to participate in this fantasy themselves the main character of each game is a customizable player character of either gender Fire Emblem Fates sort of pushed that even further by adding weird petting minigames uh, where you can pet your your teammates to increase your bond and it was somehow even weirder considering the entire game's units in fire emblem fates are from your player character's family so that was weird um and there was a lot of bitching and freaking out about this when the game came out 
Fire Emblem Echoes uh, came out immediately after Fates and threw all out uh, all of this out in favor of two defined protagonists, Alm and Salika, who are on the box, which you play as both characters during the game. That they sort of alternate chapters throughout the game. There is one predetermined love story, the one of Alm and Salika, of course, and a much simpler support system that takes place entirely in battle and is not creepy at all. And the game was still really fucking good. Uh, it was a really good Fire Emblem game. So. I sort of got two personal takeaways from playing this game. Uh, the first one was something I was not expecting, which is playing this game on my commute to work makes me more productive. And the reason is that when I get to the office, my brain is already warmed up. So I have less warming up to do to actually become productive when I get to work. And that is a great side effect that I didn't know that game was going to have on my work life. Um, and the other thing is playing this game made me realize that I vastly prefer turn-based strategy games to regular RPGs. And there are sort of three reasons for this. The first is it's map-based, so there are clear start and end points for your play session. And if there are any objectives, they're going to be restricted to the scope of a single map. There's no objectives that cross several maps, um, and that's great. Uh, mostly linear progression means you never really need to wonder what you need to do next because there's usually only really one main scenario map for you to move on to. Sometimes there's side side activities, but they're usually clearly laid out as being side activities, so you don't actually have to do them. And these first two points actually make it really easy to put the game down for a while and return much later like I did this year, uh, which isn't necessarily the case in regular RPGs, because as Yukari has mentioned in the past with Persona games, you can save in the middle of a field or in a town or in the opposite end of the complete of the current objective you have to do that you no longer remember, and you just forget what you're supposed to do and you're like, well, maybe I should just delete my game even though there are 45 hours in this playthrough, <laughs> which is not great. And the last point that I really like about turn-based strategy games is battles are mechanic and information rich. The floor for mechanical complexity is much higher in strategy games and you're also armed with lots more information with which to take uh, strategic decisions. So if you are the kind of person who thrives on spreadsheets and lots of numbers and trying to process that information to make good technical decisions, like strategy RPGs are your jam and regular RPGs kind of feel like not bland, but mechanically empty compared to them. And I think that's sort of like one of the big realizations I had this year is Actually, maybe I'm just more into turn-based strategy than I am into RPGs, even though I fooled myself into thinking I was into RPGs all this time. Wow, what a realization! Yes, it, it we're only at, we're only at game one. Yes, and like I, I looked back at the games I've enjoyed most of like the last fifteen years, and I realized like they're mostly turn-based strategy RPGs. I just never really connected the dots. Um, so yeah, <laughs> good realization for game number one. So let's move on to your game number three. Good. Game number three. Mario plus Rabbids Kingdom Battle in the uh, released in 2017 for the Nintendo Switch. This has been a game that I had on my radar for a couple of years now. Um, and I think if I recall correctly, I even discussed it just a bit in my uh, to-do list uh, last year. Yep. And I... If I recall correctly, we recorded and I just bought it but didn't play it. Of course, first of all, you don't have a Nintendo Switch, but I wouldn't be surprised if you ignore your eight of uh, the uh, rabbits 
uh, that you would quite enjoy this game. Uh, so this is a game built by Nintendo by Ubisoft, and in you collaboration lost me. with. <laughs> I know, but hear me out here. It is a it is a game built by Ubisoft in collaboration with Nintendo, which meant that it was good enough for Nintendo. And those collaboration is I have to find back this article where. Uh, they were explaining the kind of the, the story behind this collaboration, but it is strange how Nintendo e this game feels. So the idea here and the, the, the excuse me, the premise of this game is the uh, rabbits invade uh, the uh, Mario Kingdom and they uh, fuck up everything as usual because rabbits and um, they're kind of like minions uh, and. More or less, you team up with rabbits and you need to uh, go around the uh, Mario Kingdom to more or less fix it up on uh, before Mini Bowser uh, kind of uh, take controls of some of weird machine that is broken and uh, more or less fixing up the the world. So you're battling. Uh, if I recall correctly, this game is based on the uh, XCOM engine. Yes. And that is a good argument for its success on the on the not on the Switch, but why the game is successful because uh, I haven't played XCOM, but it is praised for its quality of being a turn by turn game. And all of this is is it's kind of a it it reminds me a lot of um, Final Fantasy Advance no tactics. Uh, Tactics, yes, and even Advanced Wars, which are also mixing it up. The, it kind of reminds me of those two types of games, but of course, uh, more tactics because it is really players that you move on a grid and less like, like tanks and stuff like that. Uh, and it was just light enough with the Mario and Rabbids kind of characters that it made it fun. Um, of course, uh, at that time, I was playing a lot of games at the beginning of the year, so I played it a lot in one go i don't think i have completed it and then i moved to something else and now i feel that i should really revisit this game because uh it was a good game not only it was a good a good switch game i felt it was just a great game that if if you see on deals this christmas season i strongly invite you to buy it and i think i've seen some deals here in canadian dollars at around like 35 to 40 dollars uh, compared to the normal uh like 60 to 70 dollars uh paid i think if i recall correctly i paid a deal around like 50 dollars so that was like that is a great game for that price but yeah so of course the more you go through the different areas and regions of the kingdom you unlock new characters that have different abilities and power uh, and abilities and power-ups i would say and of course you can modify your party uh to use those uh characters and also you can buy uh upgrades for their guns for their ammunition uh and improve your characters throughout uh the game so I cannot spoil the ending of the game because I didn't complete this game, but as a whole, uh, it is really a fun game on the Switch, and it is um, in my book a strange must-buy for the Switch. So we've discussed in great lengths in the past few years since the Switch release uh, a number of games that is considered in my book must-buys, and I had a few friends and I also uh, also a few. Uh, 
journalists and reviewers on the internet that were mentioning that and I was like you know it's weird it's only those few people but let me tell you they are right uh, put it on your must buy I uh, know Yannick was kind of mm, I'm not so sure if I should buy a switch I always told you like you should put it on your list you'll be greatly surprised and that to me was a surprise uh, early last year early early this year excuse me cool can I move on with my next game of course all right so you sort of had the right idea in your uh honorable mentions the next game on my list is astrobot rescue mission which is Ooh. a 2018 playstation vr game it is a platformer by sony tokyo studio i believe i didn't write it down but i think that is the case uh and again exclusive to playstation vr we talked about it on episode 107 the full fat experience if you want to hear a lot more about this i'm just going to briefly recap what we said on that episode this is basically the only sony title that really comes close to capturing the magic of super mario 3d land and 3d world which are my favorite recent mario games uh specifically the level design is very reminiscent of that and more or less the entire aesthetic of the game is sort of ripped out of those games somehow um and this will be an important note for my next game too for some reason um it makes use of every single gimmick on the DualShock 4, um, and it actually reminds you of a couple that you forget are in there. Uh, DualShock 4 has a ton of sensors. That's why those controllers are expensive as fuck. Um, <laughs> I, I remember like back in the Nintendo Wii days uh, when the Wii was still announced and PlayStation 3 details were just starting to come out, and then like all the Nintendo fans were freaking out because the six-axis controller on the PlayStation 3 had like six axes of movement, and they were like, oh no, they're ripping off the Nintendo Wii's gimmick. Well now, not only is every gimmick from the Nintendo Wii and the DualShock 4, but there are like... 15 more and this game uses every single one of them and what's interesting is you rarely see games that manage to make use of all of a system or controllers gimmicks in an effective way that doesn't feel forceful if you look back to the very early history of the nintendo ds i was complaining a lot back in those days because a lot of those games were being very forceful and saying you need to use the microphone you need to use the touchscreen, and you should try to use the buttons as little as possible and that meant that there were a lot of terrible gimmicky games that would just force you to use these things there was a castlevania game where you had to draw your spells on the screen while navigating boss fights with a d-pad and buttons that was fucking crazy and a bad idea um another good example of those games is, and it will i'll bring up our beloved ps vita is uh, uncharted golden abyss yes. that was released with at the at ps vita launch if i recall correctly. yes and while the game was okay for a PS, uh, for an Uncharted game, it was full of the PS Vita gimmicks. Yeah, usually it's always launch games. They're like, we need to showcase every gimmick that is on the system without thinking about whether it is tasteful use or not. And then they just do it anyway. And it comes out and it's terrible and everybody hates it. Um, but this is not that. This is actually like of mid to late ps4 release i guess i mean it's closer to mid than late i guess because we still have another year to go before the ps5 but it is like a psvr launch title still it's not launch it's like a year after launch oh oh that's true oh sorry my man was a bit off by the air for this yeah it's fine um so yeah i find astrobot rescue mission to be a masterpiece that keeps you wanting more and it is definitely one of the greater 3d platformers i have ever played on any platform and i 
heavily recommend this. In fact, uh, I ranked every single one of the games that I've played this year in a list so I could decide which games I would talk about on this episode, of course. And this is the first one on my list that is a five-star game, which means we have three five-star games on my list this year, which is I don't give five stars easily, which is kind of nuts. Wow. So, yeah, it, it, it was a really good year for games, even though most of these games came out a couple of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it, this is a common theme, and I, again, for this year is... We haven't played too much, and I know we're just like a near, not even halfway to our list, but we haven't played too much of games released this year. I think the only game I've played that was released this year was Ace Combat 7. Oh, and I have one too, but I won't mention it because that's the next one in my list. Well, why don't you get to that next one on your list? Good. I think throughout our history on this podcast, when we talked about video games... Um, we had a special episode about, uh, Breath of the Wild where Tony joined us, uh, because he's a huge Zelda fan. And in that episode and throughout uh, other episodes, I think I mentioned that I didn't play too much Zelda games. And that changed again this year, uh, after playing a couple of years back, uh, Majora's Max on the 3D, Majora's Mask, excuse me, on the 3DS. This year, and that is one of the recent games I've played and still playing to this uh, today, uh, The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening, uh, of course, again, on the Nintendo Switch, released a couple of uh, months ago. Yes. So this game is a remaster on an old, not not an old, but it's it's a re-release of a Zelda game, uh, and super surprisingly enough what i liked about it even if it's not completed i'm nearly done is its simplicity if i were to compare with madrama mask that of course which is considered one of the different style of zelda games i feel that like all the other ones fit into a mold uh maybe not uh, breath of the wild but they fit into the kind of like rpg uh, mold uh this one is a bit different with the time the time shifts and uh, not infinite loop, but the fact that you had more or less three days to do your stuff and that uh, only specific side quests would happen at specific times. Uh, this one kind of feels to me everything I've heard about Zelda games being there. So there's a big map. Uh, you don't really know why, but you end up into an island and you're stuck there. Uh, uh, I since I haven't completed the story, it kind of feels like you're kind of dreaming about this, and uh, there's a lot of cues in the game hinting that you know to get out of this island, you need to do something, and then once you do that, you will never come back. More or less, like you don't uh, never remember your dreams. So I guess we can come back onto that later when I complete the game. But um, all of this is to say is. You're stuck on a small-ish map, um, and there's always something to do in every corner. So while it is open world, I do feel that the progression the game wants you to do uh, allows you to just go wander, but at the same time blocks you just enough to kind of set you on the right path. Um, While I'm used to play a lot of adventure games that are quite linear uh, because of their storyline, I felt that this game was not linear enough that I could maybe say, oh, I think it's in this area of the map. 
go there, trying to open chests. Okay, so I get some, uh, I do some, maybe a bit of uh, some of the side quests. And then realize, oh crap, no, I'm in a dead end because I haven't achieved what I was supposed to achieve. So I don't have a special tools, a special tool to go to the next section. So I, I went to a region that I should have not gone. And surprisingly enough, in other RPGs that I've played in the past, this kind of like wandering around, maybe trying that it's like, like kind of like force brooding the game to go in one section and then realize, oh no, that's not where you should have gone. It usually end up infuriating me. Like I don't want to do that like 10,000 times. I'll just like literally rage quit the game. <laughs> and I feel the ratio of really the end holding versus you letting like you using your uh, creativity, your ingenuity to try to figure out where you should go next is the right ratio for me to enjoy that game. So sometimes I get stuck and I'm like, oh, I need to figure it out. I haven't asked too much Tony nor the internet to uh, get um, myself unstuck. Just a little bit, mainly Tony because he played the game. So uh, that's easier for me because uh, if I ask Tony, I just show him the game and says, don't spoil me, just help me. And that's that's good. You haven't spoiled me too much. Uh, and I was able to make some progress. A good example is... Most temples, uh, in this game, you need to get a key to unlock them to then go inside the temple. Uh, and I think it's the num, the, 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 the say, I say temple, but they call it level five. I think I got the key for level six before completing level five because I just wandered in area of the map. I realized I had all the like add-ons I could, uh, I could have like, I think I, I, need, I didn't need to swim, but I was able to go in that region and get the key. So that's, that is this aspect of exploration that end, does not end up being useless for your progress really keeps me motivated into that game. Also, the, uh, the cartoon style is quite cute. It's quite well, uh, well executed. Of course, Again, we can go in great lengths about the quality of graphics on Switch games, but I don't want to go too into too much details because to me, that type of drawing and graphics really shines on the Switch, whether you're on the internal display, which is not of great quality, and or if you play in dark mode on a big TV like my 4K LG TV. So you, you can uh, really enjoy the game in both modes without feeling too much downplayed, uh, like a downplayed experience on uh, the portable mode versus the duck mode. So I have a personal note about this game, which is uh, Link's Awakening is actually my favorite Zelda game. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I only played it on the original Game Boy. It was actually one of the games I was gifted with my Game Boy Color when I was uh, a kid. Oh, I, that's right. It's I got color. that Pokemon Red and Pokemon Gold all uh, within two two nights on Christmas, which was really great package. Yeah, for Game Boy Color, that's a great starter package. And I think like one of the things that's quite interesting is I think among like asshole snob gamers like myself, uh, I think it's oh my a, goodness, it's a common theme, or at least it was before Breath of the Wild came out, that this was like the best regarded. Uh, to well 2d zelda or just general zelda game out there um and i i really like my time with it it's probably like one of the only zeldas that i would actually like be interested in replaying uh i i don't think i ever beat it but i got like 
I think about halfway. I don't remember very much of it. Um, there was also another like game by the same team that was not a Zelda game, but it was a similar style of game. I believe it's like As the Frog Bell Tolls or something like that, which was only released in Japan, uh, which is kind of unfortunate. And I wish they would make a similar remake to the one that they did uh, for Link's Awakening on the Switch because that game is very well regarded, but it never really came out in English. So yeah, it was a really sweet game. And I was actually, like, I wasn't as excited as everybody else for the Switch remake because I was like, well, the original game is also very good too. Uh, but it, it's nice to see it finally get some recognition as a game uh, because, like, let's be honest, around the time that Link's Awakening came out was also the time that Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask were coming out or at least being played by my friends. And so people were too busy being distracted by the shiny 3D object to actually care about the better game that was actually in their Game Boy the whole time. So about yeah. time that I'm proven right yet again. You, you know what? I, I Okay, I have a topic idea that I'm proposing, so I might regret saying that on the episode. Uh, but it feels to me that now that Nintendo only has one console, they are able to focus their delivery of games like they, they can be more focused. And it feels to me that you might not be, it might be less problematic for you to skip games because like it's in one console. So if it's like, Oh no, I don't have the mobile console or I already have the own console. Uh, it might mean less money for Nintendo because you're buying less consoles, but I feel in the end that it means more focus of execution into which games are delivered on said consoles. And I guess I'm sure we have can have a, a long discussion about this. I'm sorry that I'm opening this topic. But that's kind of my general feeling these days about the Switch. I mean, we could do another episode of like 2020 thoughts about Switch. Um, <laughs> because certainly like the Switch Lite has changed my, well, not really changed my opinions, but the Switch Lite is like the thing that would be drawing me to the Switch, except there is a big deal breaker and I don't want to spoil what it is right now. You'll just have to figure it out. Hmm. Okay. Another good point that I like about this game is I have to look at my save time, but, uh, my save game to see, uh, my play time, excuse me. But I would say that, uh, the play time is not that high. According to alongtobeat.com, on average, you would spend maybe 15 hours on a game. And I do feel that for this 15 hours, you get good enough RPG isms that compared to let's say Final Fantasy 7 which we discussed in two episodes this year's uh you don't need to wait let these 15 hours to get something out of the game more or less this game is joyful fun and enjoyable throughout those 15 hours and then you can complete it and have a the feeling of accomplishment because you will run into the, like, you'll, I guess, go beat the boss, which I haven't done yet. Uh, so I'm not sure if I'm saying the right things, but my point is we'd say you have a sentiment of accomplishment in this game. Plus having what I feel is all the typical RPGisms in this game. I, I wouldn't call this game an RPG. It's really more of an, like, like at best it's an action RPG, but like there aren't enough numbers for it to be an RPG really. Uh it's an action adventure game. Yeah, and you know what? Maybe that's one of the reasons I like it so much. Because I think throughout the years there's something that has been made clear is I am an action adventure video game player. And that 
that's kind of spoiling my third game, but... I, I don't remember what games you've played this year, so I have no idea, but... <laughs> that's good then. then <laughs> let's move to your next game. All right, who's ready for another non-PlayStation game? <laughs> so this is Captain Code. Uh, Captain Code, yeah. I've been doing too much not swift recently. Captain Toad Treasure Tracker. Ooh. That is a nice little alliteration for you. It is a 2014 release on the Wii U and more recently ported to the 3DS and Switch. It is a puzzle game derived from the Captain Toad puzzle stages from Super Mario 3D World on Wii U. See, I told you it was going to come up again. <laughs> On the original Super Mario 3D World, uh, in those stages you play as Captain Toad and you need to find three stars hidden throughout the stage by overcoming whatever puzzles and obstacles are in your way. And you might be saying, well, what makes this special? Well, unlike all of the other characters in 3D World, Toad can't jump, uh, so it's not a platformer. Uh, but he can walk and he can pull items out of the ground, just like in Super Mario Bros. 2 USA. And occasionally there are interactive objects that use the touchscreen or microphone that can facilitate Toad's movement throughout the stage. Um, but like even just the first stages, it's just like you're rotating the camera trying to navigate this little maze thing with Toad to try and get to the end. Whoa, did you just say that because Toad cannot jump, it's not a platformer? I mean, the entire point of platforms is you jump on them. Okay, fair, but I... I I haven't played this game. I would still consider it a platformer, but that's my loose definition of game gen video game genres. So, like, shrug. if you're really stretching the definition, it's a puzzle platformer. But game genres are made up shit anyway. It's like music. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Fair. That I guess something I learned today. So. I have limited experience with uh, Super Mario 3D World. I've mostly played 3D Land, which was the 3DS game. Uh, but I did play a handful of Captain Toad stages uh, back when uh, we had this whole adventure with my cousin who got a Wii U and then we had to return it. And I was in charge of testing it before we brought it back to this place to avoid that there's another disaster where we have to return the Wii U again. Uh, so I played a couple uh times on 3d world and i found the captain toad stages to be really enjoyable because they were a nice little chill break between more tense platforming stages uh, so it was really nice within the context of 3d world and then th they announced they were going to make a full game around it and when the game came out friends and critics that i respect had a lot of really good things to say about the full game on wii u so i've always sort of been a little bit curious kind of like what you felt with rabbits i guess to some extent but I had no intention of getting a Wii U, and eventually it became clear that the Wii U was going to die. Uh, so that's when they announced that as part of the first wave of Wii U to 3DS and Switch conversions, following the Switch's launch, they were going to port Captain Toad. Uh, and it turns out that the 3DS conversion is actually quite amazing. Uh, it's graphically quite impressive, especially in 3D. And all of the gimmicks that were present on the Wii U gamepad, which is the touchscreen and the microphone and all that stuff, they were all things that the touchpad sort of inherited from the DS to begin with, so nothing is really lost in translation. Uh, actually, if I have to recommend one version over the other, I think the Switch one is actually a little bit worse because if you try to play it on uh, in docked mode, you have to use weird motion controls that I think would fall down very quickly for certain parts of the game. That's all I'm going to say. So yeah, it, it was a really nice conversion. And it, like Digital Foundry did a video about it because they were like, these effects shouldn't work on the 3DS, which is a terrible 240p console. Uh, but it still worked. Uh, 
And to me, there's only one real weakness with the game, because this game is incredibly cool and chill. It was great for commutes. Levels are, like, maybe 30 to 45 seconds long uh, sometimes, and occasionally they'll go for a couple minutes uh, for the more complicated ones. Um, But it's super chill, and the place where this game kind of fell apart in bits were the boss fights. Uh, they're like, I don't know why this game has boss fights, uh, but there are boss fights and they are boring, repetitive, and poorly designed. <laughs> uh, luckily there are very few of them, but they still exist, which is a problem. So most of the boss fights in this game share a very similar formula. And I'm not really spoiling anything because this is what every Mario game does. They have like three bosses and then they repeat them like seven times and throughout the game. Uh, so this is not new, but the particular flavor of boss that I dislike is the one where you need to climb up to the top of the stage before lava swallows you up. And there are a ton of things that are flying at you that you need to dodge and a ton of interactable objects that you need to mess around with to actually like open the pathway to actually be able to continue climbing up. The problem is because of these interactive objects, you need to switch quickly between having your hands on the circle pad and buttons and then having the stylus out and often quickly spinning something on screen or something. And the problem is the timing window is actually rather tight. And the time it takes you to switch stances or whatever we're going to call it is often going to be the deciding factor in if you can beat the boss stage or not. And that kind of like unforgiving timing and urgency isn't a good fit for a game that is otherwise incredibly chill and has basically no urgency whatsoever. Um, so while Captain Toad stages might be a good break between tense Mario platforming stages, the opposite isn't actually that welcome when you're talking about this game in particular. But otherwise, it's absolutely fantastic. I would recommend it to anyone who has any of these systems. It is another five-star game on my book. Uh, and it, there are some story twists, which are interesting and rarely seen in Nintendo games and greatly appreciated. So go check it out if you are a fan of the Mario series or 3D World or just want a really chill game to hang out with. I really have to uh, keep an eye on this game because I recall when it got released on the Wii U, which Tony bought, uh, he wanted to get it, never got it. And now when it got re-released on the Switch, it was like, oh, I I didn't buy it on the Wii U, so now I need to buy it on the Switch. And now now I'm not sure if he really bought it on the Switch or not. So I guess I have to look at something after this recording. Like, as usual, it has the, like, Nintendo weird thing, which is like, if this was a PS4 game, it would probably cost 20 bucks, but because it's a Nintendo game, it's like 60 or $70. Right, right. And But it's still very good. And like on 3DS, it's like reduced price because 3DS games are cheaper to begin with. So I got a pretty good deal on it, especially considering I got it used in Japan. So, hmm. Okay. If I count correctly, it's time for your number one game. My number one game. Okay. There's a long preface before I go to my number one game. Remember in the intro when I was saying that I was supposed, I was not expecting that I played so few games. There is one game that I haven't played that I was expecting to it to be my game of the year. So I'll start with the game that is not my game of the year because I haven't played it, but I expect it to be my game of the year. This Maybe is some real next. top four shit. <laughs> yes, which is which I would expect it to be my game of the year next year, but no, and you'll see why. Shadow of the Tomb Raider, which got released in September 2018. 20, why have it 2018? Yeah, 2018. Yeah, so uh, I, I don't know why I had 2019 in my uh, notes, which is uh, not uh, good. But so that got released again last year. 
and that was on my list of games to play but uh, again <coughs> I did not play it the idea was to say that I really 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 love the first two game of this uh, reboot um, mainly developed by Adios Montreal um, I played Tom Raider in the 2013 game I also played uh, looking at for the name Rays of the Tom Raider the Tom Raider that was in 2016 uh, and now this one and I, that was one of the game I was really awaiting but uh, life got in the way I never bought it and knowing that life was in the way it was I didn't want really to spend $80 to buy it and now I seen a good deal so I would expect that if I get some of the games unfinished games that I've just mentioned like uh Link's Awakening, that would be my next game to play during the holiday time. Knowing that this game would be my game of the year, this kind of gives a, a small hint to uh, what would be my game of the year. So I finally, finally bought uh, Uncharted The Lost Legacy, which was released in 2017 for the Sony PlayStation 4, and this year is my game of the year. Um... The year before, so it would be 2017, I did play Uncharted 4. And that uh, Uncharted The Lost Legacy is not really a new title, which meant that it is using the same game engine built for Uncharted 4, but it is with a shorter story. It's kind of, it's kind of a 4.5, I think the best way to describe it. It is a spin-off uh, from the uh, Uncharted series, um, which meant that it is not with Nathan Drake. As uh, if you've played, and it's spoiler alert, uh, in Uncharted 4, that's more than the last game, which is a Nathan Drake story. So it is nice to see old characters that you've seen from, uh, so you have, uh, Chloe that was in, uh, Uncharted 2, and you have Nadine that is a new character in, uh, Uncharted 4. And those, in both of their games were, cons- they were considered quote unquote villains, uh, part of the games. Nadine, I feel more than Chloe, uh, in Uncharted 4. She, um, Chloe was kind of a, like a, like a, not a mob contractor, but like kind of a, like a private army contractor. Uh, she was part of this private army contracting by the real villain of Uncharted 4. Uh, but in the end, what you've realized is they bond together in this game to uh, and become the main characters of the game. So you do play as Chloe, but Nadine is your teammate in that mission. Also, they did an interesting twist on top of the typical linear adventure game that is Uncharted. Uh, now you end up in being into an open world area where you can decide where you need to go. Um, y- the idea is you are, of course, trying to find some old shit from some old people from, like, thousands of years ago, and they're all, like, lost city. That's, like, typical playbook Uncharted. Of, go- of course, as the typical Uncharted playbook, the storytelling is amazing. The character details and graphics are quite nice even for a console game but here is you don't follow your character from like point a to point b and you're not guided through point a to point b you just end up in the middle of uh 
if I recall correctly, Africa, but I have not noted it. Uh, and you have multiple small portion of this open world area where you need to explore to find clues to know where you need to go next. And once you've like visited all of it, then it becomes, it goes back to be uh, a more typical Uncharted game where you, you really go to from point A to point B and then the story moves forward with that. Um, so you kind of find the lost city and uh, you realize that there's bad guys again and then some people are betraying you that, and, and without spoiling too much the game again. And then you go back a bit, but once you've really explored the big areas, you do uh, end up in a typical Uncharted game. So what I liked so much about this game is kind of revisiting familiar characters. Uh, I really love the stories in Uncharted, like from 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 3, 1, 2, 3, 4, and this one. Uh, and again, what I liked in the end is I hope that Naughty Dog even if they didn't literally kill Nathan Drake, but they kind of like retired the character. And that's kind of spoiling the Uncharted 4. But uh, the Lost Legacy leaves a door open for more game in this universe with some characters we met throughout the games and have them shine in their own game. I could see more games with either Chloe and Nadine that are kind of becoming those scavengers uh, and kind of becoming the their own Nathan Drake part of the, their own missions. And uh, hopefully that's uh, something we will see more. I know uh, you may, I have heard that Naughty Dog these days is busy on the sequel of another of their amazing games, which I shouldn't say that yet, but I expect it to be maybe my game of the year next year. The Last of Us Part 2. Uh, this one, I'm sure, sure, sure that I'll make some time in 2010 to a buy it at release and like literally play it uh, when it gets released because I loved um, The Last of Us Part 1. Now that they released Part 2 and all the trailers, I kind of like shitting my pants. They look so good. And more or less, uh, Uncharted The Lost Legacy was a great game waiting for the next thing coming out of Naughty Dog. Yay. So, let's go with your game of the year, Yannick. Okay, so this is not going to surprise anyone. This is not a PlayStation 1 game. <laughs> oh my fucking god, really? <laughs> I There's will, zero I will, PlayStation 1 game? I will get to why at the end of this. Don't okay. worry. Uh, this game was released in 2011 on a whole bunch of systems. It was released on PS3, 360, PS4, Xbox One, Switch, and twice on PC. And I'm talking about Dark Souls. So oh. Dark Souls is a notorious third-person action RPG game from From Software, and it was published by Bandai Namco. And it's kind of a huge thing in the gaming industry. It's a game that is defined by its reputation, People absolutely love Dark Souls. Hardcore gamers keep bringing it up all the time, and it really like left a dent in the gaming industry that we are still seeing the impact of today. But at the same time, people hate Dark Souls because it seems significantly more difficult than anything that today's gamers are used to playing. Um, and 
I was always kind of a little bit curious about Dark Souls, but my usual like weird instincts kicked in. So like I mentioned earlier, I played Nier Automata uh, back in January. And while I found that the world and character design was absolutely amazing, I absolutely hated it as a game. Uh, and a lot of the people who hype Dark Souls also hyped Nier Automata. So part of me was questioning if I really wanted to get into this, knowing that I felt betrayed by their bad taste with Nier Automata. Yeah, I can expect. And the other thing is, like, I know I play a lot of video games, but I'm also generally quite bad at video games. And I've played two other games in, like, the Souls-like genre, uh, being Bloodborne and Neo. And my bad experience with those games, not bad in terms of the game is bad, but bad as in I am bad at the game, uh, <laughs> they led me to believe that I wouldn't make enough progress in Dark Souls to actually appreciate the aspects that people praise it for. But then there was a sale on the PlayStation Store, and it allowed me to pick up Dark Souls Remastered for like 12 bucks. And I was like, well, I might as well just get it. Who cares? It's just 12 bucks, right? And it sort of took over my life for a while. So yes, it is worth all of the hype it gets. And no, it is not as difficult as everybody claims that it is. Um, and I'm going to break that down. So I want to start talking by talking about the difficulty. Dark Souls is very similar to the classic Monster Hunter series or monster hunter games before world not in terms of actual game mechanics but in terms that it withholds a lot of information from the player and the game can be very daunting because it would withholds that information let's go back to what i said about fire emblem echoes at the start of the show and this is why i needed to have five or four games uh Turn-based strategy games make a wealth of information available to you and then the game tests your ability to process that information to take the optimal decision every time dark souls on the other hand completely different genre of game, by the way, uh, makes almost no information available to you. Or when it does, sometimes it's just a number next to a noun that is never explained to you at all anywhere in the game, which can be challenging. There is a very short 10-minute tutorial introduction to the game that teaches you the basic controls, and it teaches you all of the controls in a very short segment. But aside from that, you are mostly on your own to learn all of the game's mechanics and systems. And that kind of approach leads to many different possible approaches to playing the game so one of the things you can do is you can go in completely blind by yourself and figure out as much as you want by yourself i know some people who love doing that every time there's a new souls game that comes out the the thing that a lot of my friends do is they all say we're going to buy this game together at launch they all go in blind with their group of friends and they exchange the knowledge that they pick up by playing the game amongst themselves and then there's people like me who are like, hmm, I'm going to go seek out information by doing a bunch of research online and making a bunch of spreadsheets and meticulously planning exactly how I want to play this game. That's a viable way to play the game as well. Um, and I think the reason that the average Dark Souls player has such a hard time is because they will enter the game knowing jack shit about how the game works, and they are probably going to piece together some janky, aimless character build from all of the random gear that they find across the world. And... That's fine. But as you slowly learn to how to play Dark Souls optimally, much, but not all, of the perceived difficulty goes away, and it becomes merely a challenging action RPG instead of something insanely difficult like everyone says it is. Because it turns out that learning to play the game is the game, and learning to play the game is not a skill set that is tested by very many modern mainstream games. In fact, it sort of goes against modern game design values where you try to make everything as intuitive as possible this game is intentionally obtuse 
And I think that's why it turns off a lot of people. And this is also why it feels so refreshing to people who grew up like in the NES and SNES era. Uh, you miss how retro games felt back in the day when nothing could be explained to you in game and all you had to rely on was gossip from the kids at the playground or experimenting a lot with your game. So if you're bad at video games, you can still play and enjoy Dark Souls if you treat it like a research project, which is great for me because I love that shit. If you're great at video games and you want to challenge yourself, you can go in completely blind, see how much you figure out on your own, and have a real good time having your ass beaten. And in both cases, as you evolve as a player and find the right items, uncover layers of mechanics, and familiarize yourself with enemy patterns, you become stronger as a player. Um, but, like... I also need to mention that challenge is necessary to have the emotional impact on the player that the game is trying to have. If the game is about getting you to learn through experimentation, you will need to fail a lot to know what works and what doesn't work. Um, the main currency in Dark Souls is obviously souls. Uh, you gain them from killing enemies, and souls can be turned in at vendors for leveling up your stats, buying items, repairing, and upgrading your equipment. And when you die in Dark Souls, you lose all of the souls that you are holding onto. You respawn at a checkpoint, the last, uh, the last checkpoint you, or bonfire you, uh, lit. And in the place you died, there's going to be a bloodstain. If you manage to get back to your bloodstain and don't die, you can touch it and regain all of the souls in addition to the ones that you gained on the way back to the bloodstain. However, if you die before you get to it, those souls are just gone. And by putting a cr such a crucial currency in the game at risk of disappearing every time you fail, you often find yourself in a situation where a lot is at stake. And that's how the game has its memorable moments, because you lose big, and that leaves impressions on you on what things are and aren't effective in the game. Now, related to that, there was a big thing in the Gamer Zeitgeist this year about Sekiro Shadows Die Twice, which is the newest Souls-like game from From Software, about whether or not there should be difficulty settings in these kinds of games. And my personal experience with difficulty modes in a lot of games is that it's incredibly hard to actually like look at a menu of difficulty options and correctly assess what difficulty level is appropriate for you. Um, like they're just words on a screen. You don't actually know what they mean. And even if you describe it in like, oh, 280 character sentence, I'm probably not going to be able to pick out really what difficulty level I should be in. I maybe have an idea like what half of the screen I should be in, but that's about as good as it can be. And this is why I sort of appreciate games like Titanfall 2, which start the game by saying, try to complete this part and we're going to see how many minutes it takes for you to complete it. And we will determine the difficulty level in function of like which features you used to traverse this thing and how quickly you did it to get a dynamic difficulty level for you. Um, but many other games just rely on difficulty menus, and that's not great. And numerous times I've realized too late into a game that I chose a difficulty option that was too easy for my proficiency level. But if I wanted to change the difficulty level, I had to start a new game to bump it up a notch, and I'd never felt it was worth it. So I just continued playing this too easy game that was not as interesting as it would have been if it had actually kept the challenge. So if the game needs to be challenging to get you to feel the things that it wants you to have... Uh, that it wants you to feel to leave the impact on your life it's going for, but you also have the flexibility to, let's say, tweak the difficulty of the game in an options menu at any time, like certain games do nowadays, do you actually trust yourself to not rely on those options to skip the challenge altogether when things intentionally get tough on you? 
and that's a hard question to answer. And that is sort of what the entire debate was, if I had to sum, sum it up in one question. And I mean, like, there's a lot of things to throw around about, like, well, what about developer intent? And uh, are games supposed to be fun? And a bunch of other, like, artsy-fartsy stuff that I don't really want to get into, but I just wanted to sort of have the parallel. On top of just, like, the the challenge and perceived difficulty thing going on with Dark Souls, the game is also brilliant. Now, I do want to mention that I will spoil certain things because since learning the game is the game anything i really say about the game's mechanics could technically be spoilers so if you're interested in blind playing the game because you've heard what i've said about it uh skip to the next chapter and you won't have anything spoiled for you this game is basically a metroidvania game as a third person action rpg uh, metroidvania is a word that's used for games that are inspired by super metroid or the castlevania symphony of the night and later games where you have this interconnected sprawling world with a bunch of collectible items all over the place and it's an rpg i mean like usually it's side scrolling but in this case it's third person action rpg uh and this is probably the Metroidvania out there with some of the best interconnected world design I've ever seen in a video game. When you start the game, you have a feeling that there's this central hub world with multiple paths that lead to visually distinct areas that feel like visually distinct levels. Like you're like, oh, well, it's really just a level-based game that is connected to this hub world, and then it's just going to feel like distinct levels everywhere. But it's only as you complete areas that you start discovering that there are shortcuts that loop back to the hub world or previous areas in incredibly clever ways that you realize to which degree this world is interconnected. And one of the things that really reinforces that is that there's no fast travel available until the last 30% of the game or so. So you will get to know the layout of the world incredibly well because you will have to backtrack and walk from place to place. And the world is so well designed that it never actually feels that cumbersome. Um, though th that does have the side effect because of fast travel actually being introduced later in the game that you have significantly less memory about the later areas in the game because you have to walk through them less. There you go. Uh, and there's also a great video from Game Maker's Toolkit about uh, how great the level design in Dark Souls is that I will put in the show notes. But despite having a relatively straightforward objective or story progression, a lot of things can be done out of sequence or you can find sneaky ways into areas of the game that would be blocked off using the regular intended path. And you can abuse this in creative ways. And again, this is the kind of thing that you could probably only find out about by intentionally going the wrong way when you're starting to play the game or researching it online. And it can be used to your advantage to make the game easier. Like I said, knowledge is power. Um, from my own personal playthrough, I knew that I wanted to play the game with a giant club as my weapon. So the first thing I did is I looked up if I can get a giant club from the start of the game. And yes, I could. And how could I get it? Well, if I go the wrong way from the starting area, I sneak through, uh, sneak past four high-level enemies and don't die. I climb down a bunch of ladders and I roll through a poison lake. I can go get a giant club at the very start of the game and use that as my weapon. And it turns out that there are stat requirements to be able to equip the giant club but they're actually relatively easy to meet early in the game. And it's one of the highest damage dealing weapons in the game. So I just played the game with my regular weapon until I had enough experience to actually equip the giant club, equip the giant club. And suddenly I'm super overpowered for the first part of the game, which is great. It makes you feel smart and like you've outsmarted the game. And of course, like all I did was go look it up on a wiki or on YouTube or whatever, but like, you could also have figured that out if you're that kind of person. 
And again, no one would think to do that in like an average playthrough. The people who are like really frustrated with the difficulty in Dark Souls, they never think to do this because they'd probably just follow what looks like the obvious intended path. But there's all kinds of stuff like this all over the game if you stumble upon it or if you do the research. And I just really like games that reward knowledge and information uh, over mechanical skill and all that stuff. And for that reason, Dark Souls is a solid 5 out of 5 for me. Um, I still haven't finished it, but there's a very good reason for that. It's because I'm about halfway through the required content to beat the game, and about 25% of the way in through the game, I decided that I love this game so much I want to beat every single boss in every area, including DLC, because I love it so much, uh, which I never do for any game, really. Wow, that's quite a commitment. Yes. Um but at the same time, like, I have to be honest that the optional content in the game is also where some of the most extreme difficulty is. Like, actually painfully hard stuff is also in the game. It's just you don't have to do it usually. Uh, so it might take me quite a while to beat it. But, like, I am known for being bad at video games and I am making decent progress through this game just by playing smart and doing research. And I think, like, if I can do it, you can do it too, probably. Uh, so... That's why I think like the whole difficulty thing is overblown. It's just people don't want to change the mindset with which they approach this game to play the game on its terms. And I think they're missing out because of that. So that is it for my number one game, Dark Souls. Now I should probably explain where the PlayStation games went, huh? Please do. <laughs> because I'm waiting to for the explanation. Because literally the only PlayStation game is not even a PlayStation 1 game. Yeah, they're all PS4. Um, so I ranked almost every, uh, game that I played in 2019 and PlayStation games start showing up at number six. Um, and I'm going to briefly talk about my number six, which is Final Fantasy VIII, which was a game that if you listen to last year's game of the year episode, I was very excited to play this year. So what happened? Well, uh, while being wildly different games, I feel that Dark Souls did a lot of the things that I wanted out of Final Fantasy VIII a lot better than Final Fantasy VIII. Uh, just to give like a quick idea of what I mean by that, uh, with the right knowledge in Final Fantasy VIII, you can take advantage of the game's mechanics to effectively become unkillable and trivialize all combat from the very first disc of the game with very little time investment, if you just know what to do. But this is where it gets sort of ruined, is the game punishes you if you want to take advantage of that power. The game actively disincentivizes you from gaining experience points to level up your character, which sounds nuts for an RPG. Um, but the entire progression system is a parallel track to your character level, and that is how you actually get strong, and actually leveling up just makes the enemies stronger, which is kind of weird, and probably why a lot of people who played Final Fantasy VIII back in the days just were grinding all the time, and then they got to the end boss, which became actually impossible because they were grinding too much. Just bad. So the optimal way to play the game is to only fight bosses and other required battles and keep your character levels like at level 19 to beat the game. Never higher than level 19. And what this means is if you actually like RPG combat mechanics when they're quite deep and you like uh, incredibly flexible customization options like Final Fantasy VIII has, you're going to be very disappointed when you find out you're shooting yourself in the foot every single time you actually complete a battle that isn't required by the game, and that's why it didn't rank higher than it was. It was one of the more mechanically interesting games of the year, but it punishes you for using the for abusing its mechanics, so why would I continue playing it? Um, I will probably eventually end up playing more of it because there are a lot of other very interesting things about the game, 
but that is sort of like the best one I played this year. And there were actually four PS1 games in my top 10. So FF8 was at number six. Uh, Threads of Fate or Dew Prism was at number eight. R4 Ridge Racer Type 4 was at number nine. And Ridge Ridge Racer High Spec Version was at number 10. Where's the Final Fantasy? Seven. Uh, a lot lower. <laughs> I knew, but I just want to see the scale. Uh, let me open the document. I don't have it open right now. Oh, because I I know you were quite harsh on the game, uh, especially compared to your love of Final Fantasy VIII, which One, is one, two, three, four, five, six, six so. seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, oh, wow, fifteen, okay. sixteen, seventeenth. Oh wow! Okay, quite a drop compared to Final Fantasy VIII. It is my second lowest four star game. Hmm. Wow, okay. So that's where it ranked. Um, also, like, one of the things that happened is, funnily enough, like, my, I had trouble getting Final Fantasy VIII delivered to me because I actually ended up, like, having to wait three months to file a complaint with PayPal and weird shit on eBay. And basically, I played a lot less PlayStation games than I expected I would. And the other thing is, I completely miscalculated how many hours i actually have to play games so when i was saying i was going to beat two games a month like no that was never going to happen uh i can beat like an 11 hour game in a month that's fine but like as soon as we start going above 14 hours it starts to become a little bit dicey uh and all of my planning fell apart very quickly yeah and i guess especially if it requires you to be at home in front of the tv to play it yeah uh and like one of the things is at least for the main games that I'm interested in, I'm trying to play it on a console at home, on the actual PS1 at home, whereas there are other PS1 games that I'm playing at the same time on my PS Vita, but they're not the same games. And anyway, there there's a bunch of stuff going on. Uh, I also got a ton of new PlayStation games during my trip to Japan. Uh, and as you may remember, one of my rules for these Game of the Year's episode is that I stop counting games in the month of October because I don't want to have recency bias towards the most recent games I've played. So there are a lot of PS1 games sitting right next to me, like about 30 of them, that uh, I will be playing throughout the next year. Uh, and I will probably have a lot more to say about them in next year's Game of the Year episode. A few of those games are more interesting than most PS1 games I played this year. So that will be interesting. I asked the listeners of the show to give us their games of the year, and we got three people who actually answered in. So I'm going to share their recommendations, and maybe to good of you, you can inspire, uh, you can get inspired by these recommendations to play some more games next year. Maybe before we go with that, I could go with yeah some of the games I would like to play. I already named two, uh, while trying to uh, name drop my top, my number one pick. Uh, so yes, I did mention uh, Shadow of the Tomb Raider and also uh, The Last of Us Part 2. Uh, while I was disappointed that uh, The Last of Us Part 2 got delayed, I guess it gives me more time to uh, maybe uh, add some games during the summer, uh, the, the spring season. Uh, now that uh, The Last of Us Part 2 is due to be released in May, late May. Uh, it says May 29, 2020, so it's... Uh, it's becoming dicey, so I guess that's why when it gets released, I have to be, uh, I have to reserve time for it because, uh, as we saw this year, uh, the closer we get to summer, the less time I have, more or less, uh, summer is my car season, not my video game season. 
Uh, on top of that, uh, I did mention that I would like to play some of the Pokemon games last year, which meant Let's Go Pikachu, Let's Go Eevee, which I did not touch any of those two games. On top of that, uh, Nintendo released, and the Pokemon company released, uh, Pokemon Sword and Shield, which I didn't play, but, uh, no, that's a lie. I theory, practically played it for 15 minutes. Because uh, last night when I wanted to play uh, Link's Awakening, Tony was in the middle of a, of a fight. So I had to complete the fight so I can save his game and then play uh, Link's Awakening. So I did play it, uh, but I would like to maybe play it a bit uh, to see what's there. But those will be more uh, down my list. Also, recently I was going through my list of PSN Plus games and I was uh, having some quite fun because there was a couple of games that I've downloaded because uh, they were A, free and B, recommended. I think uh, there's... Oh my goodness, now that I need to mention it and I didn't put it in my list, but it's uh, Iru 2 Boyfriend? Is that the one that with the bird that is your boyfriend? Oh, Hotful bur- Boyfriend. Uh, uh, yeah, Hotful Boyfriend. Boyfriend, uh, you literally spam me with DMs and instant message the month it was uh, free, so I made sure to download it. God, that I was did. ages ago. I don't even remember <laughs> that. <laughs> yes, uh, so I do have it, and uh, this is on my some random list. Uh, and to be honest, that's for now more or less what is on my list. Not too much. So yeah, maybe uh, some of the. Uh, some of the uh, game of the year from my listener will be added to my list. Okay, so I'm going to go through these, starting off with David. Uh, David has three games on his game of the year list. Fire Emblem Three Houses, which is the newest chapter in the Fire Emblem series from Nintendo, but with some Persona-esque feeling systems sprinkled in the downtime between turn-based strategy battles. Um, I know I was excited for uh, a Switch Fire Emblem last year and then i sort of saw what it looked like and i was like kind of i i'm increasingly realizing that maybe i'm just biased towards late 90s early 2000s graphics for strategy games but that is a topic for a different time um but lots of people are enjoying fire emblem three houses and it definitely like seeing people hype for that game got me excited to go play echoes again like i mentioned so good choice there uh next game is a game i did not know existed it is called molek Synthes. it is a mac and pc game by zectronics it is a molecular synthesis game where you make a bunch of drugs in a romanian apartment which i don't know that either you're really into that or you're really not i guess um it kind of reminds me of an old ambrosia software game uh from the classic mac called uh chiral i think is how it's pronounced which was a molecular synthesis game uh that i never really understood that well because i'm not super smart about that stuff but maybe it's cool and zactronics usually makes very good games uh on mac and pc for people who like solving problems in creative ways last on david's list was untitled goose game which is meme game extraordinaire on switch mac and pc developed by house house and published by panic our friends uh who make mac software which is really great and actually i guess someday maybe we're going to get some news about ordering a play date i don't know that's true coming that's soon true. And i did forgot that this game was on switch so that's a good reminder 
Yes. Uh, source of many memes this year. And <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. Uh, next up, uh, game of the year from Richard, which was Outer Wilds. Uh, it, it is released on PS4, Xbox One and PC. And it's an open world action adventure game where you're on a planet and the sun will supernova in 22 minutes, killing everyone. Uh, so it's kind of similar, but not exactly like Majora's Mask. You're in a 22 minute cycle where you need to pick up on various hints and details that help get you closer to altering the outcome in the next iteration of the 22 minute cycle. I have been hearing insanely good things about this from a lot of my friends. Uh, so definitely check it out if that sounds like something you are interested in. And then Brent, uh, wrote in and mentioned two games, uh, Final Fantasy 14 Shadowbringers, which is his definitive, uh, game of the year on PS4, Mac, and PC. Uh, this is the latest expansion in Square Enix's widely considered to be the best MMORPG. Sorry, WoW fans, uh, which I have been quite tempted by throughout this year. So maybe Ooh, next year I'll be playing 14 too. I don't know. Uh, and the other game on his list is Tetris 99, for which I have only written hell yeah in my notes. It's funny because I think that's the one that you just dropped to me and saying, Hey, somebody mentioned, uh, or you, I forgot if you mentioned it on Twitter or to me, uh, but I was like reminded of this game that I literally played maybe an hour or so. So that will be something to reconsider to see uh, if I really enjoy it or not. Tetris 99, the only reason to pay for a Nintendo Switch Online. It rhymes. True. No, true. And to be uh, to be honest, because of you, I still don't pay for it because of the Amazon right. Prime deal. Uh, and I have until April 2020 for that. And I guess after that, we'll just switch to... Uh, I wouldn't be surprised that after that, we switch to a family account because it is so cheap. So cheap. And that is about it. Uh, before we go... Oh, no, I have one more one thing that uh, I just remembered I would like to mention. One thing that I did not mention in my what's going to happen in 2020 is Apple Arcade. Well, technically, it's already out. Yes, but um, personally, I haven't paid for it yet. I haven't started a free trial, nothing. I am so busy with uh, uh, with TV shows, and I'm sure your last comment is about that. <laughs> um uh, that I haven't, I don't want to start a free trial mainly because I'm so busy with other shit that I don't think it will be uh, worth having this one free month. But, uh, I've been, uh, listening to a lot of podcasts and a lot of, uh, review, I've been reading a lot of reviews. I know, uh, this week, uh, Zubgrade, there's a section about Apple Arcade where they mentioned some of their great game they enjoyed. And it feels to me that Apple is doing great on this and I don't want to go into a big like Apple Arcade um, discussion but uh, I do feel that there's good titles that I should be enjoying in 2020 and hopefully I will be able to start my free trial in the next few months or weeks hopefully weeks worst case I a few months and go enjoy some of those great iOS and maybe TVOS and Mac games but mainly iOS games. Yeah, it's kind of surprising because I think most of the hype surrounding Apple Arcade leading up to its launch came from the Apple side of things, not so much the gaming side of things. But then when the service was actually available for people to go check out, I feel like a lot more of the gaming press sort of got on board and 
actually were pleasantly surprised by how good it was, especially considering Apple's track record with gaming over the years. Um, and I think like, especially when you compare it to other services that have launched this year, like Stadia and all that stuff, it ends up looking quite good as a first entry into the first serious entry into the gaming market. Although I would not go as far as to say that Apple finally understands gaming, like some people would say. No, for sure, for sure. But that, I guess it's, it is to reserve for a topic about uh, Apple Arcade, it's safe and Apple and gaming. But, uh, for sure, for the day, I'd say what it's, uh, three months, two months that it's out already. Um, at least the first few months of this new service is, uh, five star, I would say. Even if I haven't played any games, like, I think they're existing well. They have the red games at launch plus, uh, in, uh, I think they said they, uh, a bit like Apple TV, every month there will be a couple of new games yep. added. Um, so, so far so good. And this cape makes me curious, uh, to go in and quite cheap. 5.99 Canadian dollars. I think it's four or that's 6.49 Canadian. I forgot, but I know it's 4.99 USD. So do the, tra- do the conversion there, but it's quite cheap for what people are already saying. That is quite, uh, a nice service and with full of great games play with the golf everyone uh so on that note uh, i do actually want to mention something that i intended to say at the start of the show and then completely forgot about which is uh, as you sort of hinted we are going to be doing a media episode about the morning show in january we're not quite sure the exact week in january that we're going to be releasing it but we will be mentioning it on the next episode the exact date um because it turns out that like the weekend that we release the next episode is the weekend that the morning show's entire run will finally be uh, up on Apple TV Plus. So if you have Apple TV Plus, you can go watch it. If you don't have Apple TV Plus, you can take like a one week free trial and binge it. Or if you've decided or got for a, a good Christmas or any holiday uh, gift uh, Apple product, you'll get it for free for a year. That's true. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're excited to talk about that show. Oh yes. And maybe, Maybe, uh, depending on if uh, Yannick go watch some other shows, we might be including uh, other shows, like, let's say Dickinson. Let's say. Just just like that. Yeah, I can watch Dickinson. Dickinson. Yeah, Dickinson. <laughs> you should. You should. I, I recommended it to my mom, and she's loving it, Um, but I have not had the time to go and watch it myself, but I will definitely try to watch it as well. Spoiler It's great. Yeah, that, that's what I've heard. <laughs> but that's it for this year's game of the year show so thank you everyone good so we mentioned a lot of games so yannick and i will do our best to uh, make sure that all the games we mentioned and all the uh reference especially to our other video game episode are in the show notes where you and that you can find at limitlesspossibility.net slash one two five a hundred and twenty five again we mentioned a lot of past episode you can find our back catalog back catalog at limitlesspossibility.net if you want to follow the podcast on twitter and get its latest news you can find it at at limipo underscore podcast that's l-i-m-i-p-o underscore podcast you can find myself on twitter at at lucanoche that's l-u-c-c-o-n-o-u-c-h-e hopefully during the holidays i might be tweeting about some of the games i'm playing but I'm not a big Twitter user. And you can find Yannick at... Sakarina, that's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And I am always taking off-the-screen screenshots of my PS1 games and posting them to Twitter. And sometimes they're good and sometimes they're terrible because my screen has bad viewing angles. And on that note, see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.